It's not something that you would think that would happen in the New Testament. Because you see that these judgment miracles, it seems like a strange thing to say. Miracle usually seems like a positive thing, but it's miraculous in its judgment. It's the same thing that happened back in the Old Testament when two of Samuel's sons who had stolen from the food of the sacrifice from the people were literally killed. And then when the woman in Numbers chapter five is given the bitter water to drink as a test to see if she's lying or telling the truth, she, even though she lied, didn't believe God would kill her. And sure enough, she dies. A judgment miracle. And finally, it finds itself happening here. And the text says that the people of the community greatly fear the Lord. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're gonna be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are gonna encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Good evening, everyone. Hey, so good to be in front of you tonight. I am so excited that we're continuing this Acts series. But tonight I want to share with you um, in a way that some of you are going to think about and you're like, Pastor, why this topic? Why jump into this right now? You're going to really enjoy where we're going to go. And some of you are going to be wondering as we're getting into this, wow. I didn't realize I needed this so much. I was coming here tonight and I'm like, Lord, I can't believe how much I need this. And so tonight's message really hits home to me in my life personally. So we see that in Acts chapter one and two, God's people have just encountered the miraculous work of the Lord in a huge way. They saw that both power was poured out and the ability for community to be found in deep fellowship. But now we move into another part of Acts, Acts 3 to 7, where it begins with God's people encountering conflict. Conflict beginning from the outside. Now that this amazing message of the gospel and thousands, literally thousands coming to faith becomes an issue, because when people start shifting from one church to another, there's a little bit of territory arguments. I don't know how many of you have ever been to church and you're like, people start saying, oh, you go there? What? You go to Cross? What? You go to Cal Mesa? Are you kidding me? I hope when you come here, you know everyone's welcome, all right? Everyone is welcome. Hallelujah. But this church community, the OG original Jewish faith, started getting the territorial complex. They started feeling as though these guys are starting to take our people away. They're taking the message away. They're taking the focus away. They're taking the money away. They're taking our pride and prestige and honor away. Now people are listening to the 12 apostles who Jesus called, and now they're listening to their teachings and not the rabbis. There were concerns and conflict began. 
Conflict at such a level that persecution started to happen. Now, Peter and John, who had healed a man in Acts chapter 3 and then going into 4, started to get brought before the Jewish council. They brought there the first time. They had a conversation. They didn't listen. Okay, fine. They brought them the second time. And now, okay, we're going to put you in prison. Are you listening now? And then the Holy Spirit says, yeah, I'm listening. They're out. And they get out of prison. And they start preaching, and it becomes a problem again. But now we get to an interesting place. We get to a place where you and I have to consider, have I ever experienced problems in the church? Have I ever felt issues, challenges amongst my people? There were four pastors who were going to a, a men's conference. And they were asked at one point that evening to spend some time together and just talk about the issues that they were experiencing together. And so the first gentleman, you know, he went and he said, you know what, brothers, I got a confession to make. I, I really struggle with alcohol. I am not just struggling with it. I'm an alcoholic. The next one goes and he says, you know what, brothers, I, I've literally blown our family's life savings at casinos and gambling online and other places. I mean, uh, I've lost thousands. I can't stop. The third one, he's like, guys, money's a big issue for me too. And when it gets to the end of the year, I'm usually the one to cheat on taxes. I kind of fudge the numbers and take a couple zeros off. I just, come on. I'd rather give to the Lord than, than to Caesar, you know? And the last one, he gets real quiet. His eyes get real big. Whew, this is real interesting, you see. I have a problem with gossip, and I can't wait to get home to tell everybody what I just heard about you guys. <laughs> Problems, conflict within, conflict without. But now the conflict shifts in chapter 5, and it goes beyond conflict from the outside. It goes into conflict amongst each other. We see that Paul, and that Paul hasn't even emerged in the scene yet, Peter is the main leader of the church community at this time. And he's there in a certain place, and he begins just kind of teaching and teaching, and people start listening, and thousands start emerging. But what you have to realize is, as these thousands are coming and, and are there with the people, they start saying, hey, we're not going back home. Now, you have to ask yourself, why were there thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time? It was because it was the festival of weeks. It was a moment of celebration when the law of God was given to Moses. And this was one of the three pilgrimage festivals. And so it was a requirement that one male of every family or even families themselves would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of weeks. And so you had people from all over the Mediterranean who had found themselves right there in Jerusalem. They heard the message of Jesus. They were convicted. But now you had a homeless problem. Because all these people are convicted by the gospel and they're like, we're not going home. We're staying here. We need to hear more about Jesus. We need to learn. We need to learn everything we can. I'm never going back, some of them even thought. And so what do you have? You have people who have no home. They've run out of money. They have no food no extra clothing, they're in need. And so the text says they had everything in common as Matthew read us earlier. 
everything. They shared all they had. Hey, come and spend the night in our home. Hey, come eat with us. Hey, here's some money. Hey, here's some extra clothes. Hey, here's a blanket. Here's, and they started giving, giving, but the supplies were running out. Ancient writers do a unique thing of comparison. Stories pigeoned right next to each other, one negative, one positive. And we see at the end of chapter 4 in Acts, a unique person being mentioned, named Barnabas. He sells his plot of land, and he gives everything that he had from that sale to Peter. Now, the next story is not a story of a faithful man, but it's an unfaithful couple. Pigeoned right next to a faithful person, now the unfaithful. The story of how ancient writers wrote. This unfaithful couple, this wealthy unfaithful couple does the same thing. They sell a plot of land, they come to Peter, and they give him some of it. What does Peter look at this man named Ananias and say to him? He looks at him and he just says one very simple sentence. He asks him a question. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? keeping back for yourself a part of the proceeds and the land. You have lied to God, not man. As Peter was speaking to him, he died in his place. Some moments later, hours later, his wife, Sapphira, also not knowing her husband had just died, comes before Peter and he asks her the same thing. And she too, lies now it's not in it's not something that you would think that would happen in the new testament because you see that these judgment miracles it seems like a strange thing to say miracle usually seems like a positive thing but it's miraculous in its judgment it's the same thing that happened back in the old testament when two of samuel's sons who had stolen from the food of the sacrifice from the people were literally killed and then when the woman in Numbers chapter 5 is given the bitter water to drink as a test to see if she's lying or telling the truth, she, even though she lied, didn't believe God would kill her. And sure enough, she dies. A judgment miracle. And finally, it finds itself happening here. And the text says that the people of the community greatly feared the Lord. This fear was a warning that faithfulness is just as important to Jesus in this new era as it was to God in the Old Testament, the God the ancient ancestors of theirs worshipped. It wasn't any diminishment. God was still in Jesus an important figure that you cannot take lightly and you cannot assume you should just be able to deceive. Now, I'm going to read your definition, and I want you to tell me what this definition is describing, okay? Here's the definition I want you to tell me the word. The action or practice of criticizing someone in a treacherous manner while faking having a real friendship. What am I defining here? If you need a clue, I'll give you one. Go ahead and shout it out if you think you know it. You got it. Bro, brilliant. Brilliant, brother. That's why he's in med school. 
No, no, no. We're all smart too, man. Come on. But anyways, this is exactly it. Backstabbing. God doesn't like backstabbing just like you and I don't like backstabbing. God doesn't like anyone to just come up to him and say, hey, listen, this is the truth when he knows it's not. Some of you are like getting a little scared, like, whoa, Lord, I've made some promises. Are you going to do that to me too? Now, the thing that I want you to catch in the definition that I want to describe to you and why I think this happened, and it wasn't just a one-time thing that they did. It wasn't just a slip of their mind. The definition I read to you, it says, the practice of being treacherous, which tipped me off to realize this was not the first time this wealthy couple lied about business dealings. How do I know they were wealthy? Well, if you look at the name Sapphira, one commentator said it was a very uncommon name, indicating most likely that she was a woman of means and she was married to a man of a comparable socioeconomic status. They both were wealthy. So it doesn't seem strange to me that these wealthy people were deceptive. Now, I have nothing against people with means. I have nothing against families that have money. And I have nothing against some of you who are going to make a lot of money one day. Remember the church, my friends. <laughs> money can be good, but it can also be bad. In this situation, I want you to understand that money was the reason for their death. How many have died at the altar of the God of money? Why is it so important to understand that because they're wealthy, I'm not trying to point them out, but there is a proclivity to those who have money. The Bible tells us that money is something to be really garnered very carefully because it can become your God and lead you into the wrong direction. Listen to this study, the seven studies published in the periodical for the National Academy of the Sciences that reveal that upper-class individuals behave more unethically than lower-class individuals. In studies one and two, upper-class individuals were more likely to break the law while driving, lower and relative to their lower-class individuals. In follow-up laboratory studies, upper-class individuals were more likely to exhibit unethical decision-making tendencies. They took valued goods from others. They lie in a negotiation. They cheat to increase their chances of winning in a prize and endorse unethical behavior at work than were lower class individuals. Why would Ananias and Sapphira do this? Why would they do this? They have no reason to lie. They've got everything they need. Why? Two words, fear and arrogance. In another follow-up study some years later after this one, it was entitled High Economic Inequality Leads Higher Income Individuals to Be Less Generous. It debunked the notion that wealthy people are less generous. But what they did find is when there is a greater inequality amongst the socioeconomic levels, when there are more people who are poor and there are a few people who are rich, where the original study was kind of done, California, one of the highest 
gaps of the socioeconomic level. You have some of the wealthiest people in the entire world here and some of the poorest. And they found when there is such a great divide between people, it's at this point that the wealthy become less generous. Why is that? They gave two reasons. That there is a arrogance mentality. Number one, I have received this because I have earned it. I have studied. I have gotten this far. I have worked this hard. You obviously are lazy. You come from a family of lazy people. Why would I give you any of this? Second thing is this. They said in the study that there is a fear of losing money and becoming like the poor around them. So instead, they hoard and keep more to themselves. I don't know how many of you ever watched the World War II phenomenal film, phenomenal film called Schindler's List. It tells the story of Oscar Schindler, who was a very well-to-do manufacturer there in and he provided incredible resources to the country, big tax revenue, all kinds of things. Well, when the war began, he, in his factory, started to figure out, how can I, who disagree so much with what is happening with the Third Reich, how can I find a way to help the poor, help those who will die, instead of cause them to go to their misery? And so he hires as many Jews as he can as many as possible, pouring out all the money he had literally to the last moment and you catch him at the very last moments of the film, looking at himself fleeing because the Russians were coming to actually free the Jews and everyone. He was one of those Germans, but he ends up looking at a pin on him and he's like, wow, this one is gold. I could have saved 20 more of you. And he starts taking things off that he could think of. He gave everything till he became literally impoverished and died poor, actually, because he gave everything. That is an anomaly. That is rare. And Ananias and Sapphira, in their deception, chose instead to lie. So what does God do when there is deception? God purifies when there is deception. It was important that God would purify the church at their beginning, that they would understand you cannot take the Lord lightly. Okay, okay. So we see God multiplies the church. We see God purifies the church. And now we turn to the second problem, the problem that I think is more sinister because it's just so much more subtle and it happens so much more frequently. And we learn another valuable thing that God does. So let's turn to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. If you have your phone, pull it out. If you want to follow along with me, if you have a real Bible, follow along with me. Read this in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Now let's just stop. This isn't like, the Bengals were against the, the Lions. It's not just two opposing teams. It was literally the same team. They just spoke different language. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. These were the Jews from the diaspora, from all of the Mediterranean region. They spoke a common language around the Mediterranean, Greek. And when they came here, they didn't speak the common Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. 
And they didn't have this Hebrew understanding. And so there was a disagreement between the same people who spoke a different language. There arose a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food, clothing, finances, places to stay. They were being neglected. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, hey, it's not right that we're going to give up the preaching of the word to serve at tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, who will be appointed to this duty. What you catch here is that there was a disagreement, some might say a cat fight. I think it's a little crude to call it a cat fight, but there was a disagreement among some of the women. Those who were widows who didn't have someone to fight for them. And so they went to some of their leaders like, what's going on here? Why is this happening here? I remember at one of my dad's churches, there was a disagreement between some of the leaders of the church and, and pretty much my dad and the elders. And one of the elders being so angry with my dad one night, it was never fully proved, he walks out of the church and within that moment, my dad walked into the church seeing a fire that had started in the air-conditioned closet. Come on, how does a fire start within a moment of someone leaving? When disagreements get so heated between people, we become irrational. Some of you wondering, well, pastor, what's the big deal with conflict happening in the church? I mean, come on. We're going to burn churches down? Hey, it might. Or what's more realistic and more understandable is the research that was done on why people leave church. It isn't because they stop believing the truth and doctrine. More than ever, people leave. Actually, the highest majority reason why people leave, conflict. Conflict in their families and conflict with other church members. Conflict with a pastor. I don't like what he says. I don't like what he told me. I don't like what she says. She said that thing about us. He's cheating about this. This isn't right. I don't agree with them. I'm not talking to them. This is over. I'm done. I'm not coming there anymore. Forget the church. God sucks. This is, and it just escalates. And these people were starting to sow discord. So what happens when discord arises? God organizes when there is discord. Some people like to say, hey, listen, pastor, we don't need organization. I don't need to be part of an institution called the church. I do church on my own. I do church in the mountains. I do church on the weekends. I have God in my heart. I don't need you especially. I remember one person coming up to me, Pastor, why do I even need to listen to your sermons? A little insulting, but we can talk. And so people start assuming that the more disorganized the church is, the better. As if it's more organic. There is only one institution in the entire world upon which God's Spirit resides, the church. Not the school system, not the business system, 
not the political system. There is only one place in which salvation is preached and publicly proclaimed day in and day out. It is the church. And so when people want to say, I don't need that, I look at them and I say, do you understand why it exists? But when there is church, there is also mass. Because the church is not just simply an organization, it is an organism. It is a living, breathing system of people with hopes and fears and dreams and addictions and issues. And they bring all of that with them into this room. And you sit next to people, if you understood what they think about, look at, talk about, watch, listen to, you'd be like, but then you think about your own life. And you realize what you think about, talk about, listen to sometimes, and other people probably wouldn't be too proud. And the reality is we bring this mess with us and it causes conflict. And I want you to understand the rest of these verses and why they're so important for you tonight. It's because 75% now, the numbers keep growing every single year. 75% of young adults will walk out. Now, I don't believe I'm speaking to the ones who've walked out. I believe actually I'm speaking to the resilient disciples. Because it's those who remain, who, who say, you know what, I'll be here instead that I'm preaching to right now. But I want you to understand these next passages and understanding them are so important. Listen to this. The 12 summoned the full number of disciples. Verse 2 again. It isn't right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Okay, this, this kind of struck me as a little bit arrogant at first, right? Bro, I got better stuff to do. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to be serving tables for people dealing with these widows. That's kind of how it comes across, isn't it? Just, just a tinge. Anyone feel that? The apostles are too high and mighty to have to help. One guy looked at me the other day when I was coming into, into night church and I was seven and they had been there since 5.30 serving. Like, oh, is that when the pastor comes? Hmm. I knew exactly what they were saying and thinking. If you only knew what I was doing all the way leading up to that, then you would be all right. But it's not right for us to give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. It's really important that we understand the two connections being made here. The two hands of the gospel, both the serving of humanity's needs and of the preaching of the word of God. We have to realize, though, that there is a primacy to one over the other. Some people like to say, hey, listen, pastor, I'm going to let my life lead in my testimony and witness to the gospel. I will let how I treat people lead so that I never have to even say anything. I don't even have to say I'm a Christian. I don't have to speak anything about Jesus or my testimony or, or encourage them to join me at church. Like, I don't need to do that because my life says it all okay that's 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 fair that's good but you have to realize that both how you live your life and your service the social gospel and the gospel itself preached and spoken are at the dinner table but one is an appetizer the other is the main entree and every single person has a calling upon which they have been given in the church 
the body of Christ fully functioning when the word of God takes primacy, not the back seat. It's on the front burner of a church leading God's people. That's why I believe it's so important that we preach from the text. That's why the word of God here at Night Church is so vital. We, we're not in a year in the Bible because we think, oh, well, it's just something to do. No, we believe that God's word transforms the heart. It, it literally changes us when we let it saturate our soul. So when the apostles say, listen, it's so important for us to spend our time in the word and in prayer so that others might be given the opportunity to lead God's people well. So it wasn't a statement of arrogance, but rather a necessity of organization. I spend my time in preparation of God's word so that I might give you something to bless you as you leave. And so here they state this. And then verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, laying hands on them. This is why we lay hands on people here at Praxis. We believe in the Spirit of God moving on people from one to another. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith even. The most difficult, the most doubting of individuals came to believe in the gospel. We see that God continued to bless this community when they persevered through the struggle and the issues. First, there was persecution. Then there was dissension and deception. And these power struggles, they, they are so sinister in a church. There's when jealousy arises between one another. It destroys the church. Why? It destroys the greatest resource we have here, people. Now, some of you are like, why is this such a big deal? I mean, a little jealousy, a little issue, a little hardship, a little bitterness, a little unforgiveness towards that person. Listen, the, you don't know them. The, I know them, pastor. I can hold a little bit of kind of anger. I don't need to be in her space. He's not that. And we have all these things and we keep our distance. If you're part of our Bible reading plan, you'll see when you get into Proverbs 6 and 7, there are seven sins that God hates. But the seventh, he despises. And it's those who sow discord, dissension. God despises it. Why does he despise it? Why would someone utterly despise this? Well, it's very difficult for the mission of God's people to actually happen when they can't even get along. How many of you actually, as we talked about last week, know each other deeply in community? I believe that too is a spirit of discord amongst us. When we can't unify when we just simply stick to our own. I have no problem actually with the word click. 
or group of friends. But I do have a problem when we don't have space in our clique. When we don't have room for another. Hey, we're going out to eat. Dude, don't tell him we're going out to eat. Hey, we're going to go do this. Don't. Come, come. Just for I don't know how you ever knew. I don't know how, how many of you have ever been in those conversations where you have that friend that you're just like, I don't want them to come. That is a spirit of discord, disharmony, when we exclude others, when we don't allow people to be part of us, when we allow dissension to occur. We rather should be people of open arms. Allow the awkwardness. Allow those moments more often. Yes, have your moments when you're with your bros, your girls. You just, but it should be open arms most of the time. Instead, we do this. We stay so tight. I don't even have time to say hello to you. Get to know you. You're not part of me. I don't know you. My advice to you, if you sense discord in the church, in your life with others, humble yourself. Remember Philippians 4, it says to value others more than yourself. State your concern in love with people that you have issues with. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says speak the truth, but speak it in love. Some people, when they go up to someone, they want to tell them, you know, there's an issue between us. They don't say it in love. They yell it in hate. They ghost them in indifference and bitterness. I'm not going to deal with that person. They are believers. They're your fellow friends. These are people who too believe in Jesus. I think boundaries are so important. But boundaries are not to be used at the exclusion of seeking the next thing, reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we too have been given the gift of reconciliation, bringing harmony between people. Paul says, live at peace with everyone as much as it's up to you. And some of you have no desire sometimes to find peace with certain people. I don't want to be around. I don't want to deal with this. I don't. And we have all of these excuses. But this is the next point I wanted to bring up to you. They said, find us men. Find us men of good character, full of the Spirit, and possess wisdom. Some girls here in this room have been asking, I'm wondering the same thing, if I can find one. <laughs> the sad thing, at many times, I agree. I am tired. I am tired of constantly, the majority of people issues that happen is when I hear from a girl in my office, this guy, pastor. This dude, this husband of mine, this boyfriend of mine, this guy who's been playing with me and not even committing, this guy who's showing me everything but not really wanting to commit, this guy who says he's a believer but man, when we're alone, the things he wants to do, this guy who speaks these things, God, this guy, I'm tired of this. Are you? 
Some of you guys are like, bro, why are you being so hard on me right now? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because the church needs men. The church needs men who are willing to stand up. Our sisters have been carrying the load. And I mean seriously, they've been carrying the burden of the church. Do you realize there are more women in the church than there are men? There are more women who are in leadership here in our congregation than there are men. There are more women who are in praxis leadership than there are men. Is it because women are just more willing, they're more available? Or is it because our guys are distracted, lazy, uncaring, don't have a heart for the gospel potentially? might lack a sense of spiritual need in their own heart and have been sitting behind the iron and the video game controller and the screen and the adventure and have been lacking rather to be built up in the spirit of God. Is there but a man of good character here? Is there a man full of the Spirit here? Is there a man of wisdom who understands that wisdom isn't simply just getting knowledge? I'm book smart. I'm academic. I got the titles. Listen, knowledge doesn't matter anything because the definition of wisdom is rightly using knowledge. And I think we got a lot of men who have been wrongly using knowledge. And tonight I say all of this very strong, but with incredible sorrow for my own life. When I many a time have not led my family well, I remember when I had to apologize to one of my ex-girlfriends with sorrow in my heart for how I treated her. When I, as a leader, have had to apologize to people, when I haven't lived in the Spirit of God, I, I didn't reside in the spiritual day with, with Jesus. Instead, I was residing in the Spirit of Philip, which is demonic. Ellen White, in this incredible quote, I want to read to you. Listen to this quote that she has. She says this, The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Is there a man here tonight? Stephen was such a man. Stephen was such a man. The next verses tell us Stephen was full of the Spirit of God and of truth. And with boldness, he was not afraid to simply just stand there serving, stand there letting his life speak. No, he spoke with boldness of the gospel. He was not fearful of what punishment may come. And in speaking the truth, he paid with his life and was stoned to death. Fulfilling the end of the last kind of second, their last, second to last prophecy of the Bible itself. The stoning of Stephen, the Holy Spirit then went out forth beyond Judea and into all parts of the world as we'll enter into the next weeks. 
Friends, I stand before you here yearning for us as a people to stop the fighting within. The within, the fights within our own hearts. This afternoon, I was crying for my own soul. Is there a man here who's crying for his soul? A man who's willing to say, Jesus, I want to be such a man that the church, when looking for a leader, might say, this man, this is a man who I believe could stand forth and lead God's people. This would be a woman who, if someone was saying, God, is there a woman here who can pray and seek after Jesus and lead us well? Is there a woman here tonight? Faithfulness versus deception. Faithfulness of Stephen unfaithfulness of Ananias. Again, the ancient writers of a good and bad example. And so tonight, my prayer is that if in any way you, like I, have sensed in your heart that you might have been or are even now a bad example and rather yearn that, God, would you make me into a good one? That the world might see a blessing now I want to tell you that there are some amazing people who are here tonight. People who are part of our leadership team, both guys and women, who lead beautifully, amazingly. I am so proud of our teams. But I pray that every single one of you would yearn within your heart that you too might be one of the faithful. That your life would tell a story of conviction of the gospel, that your life and your example would lead people to know Jesus. So tonight, if your heart is broken in any way over any of this, whether man or woman, I want to encourage you to just kneel where you are. If you sense in your heart in any way, God, I need a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. Would you kneel right now? Jesus, my prayer tonight is that you would bless your people. Though the message is hard, the gospel is so good. A righteous and merciful Father, who when we confess our sins before you, you say, welcome, good and faithful servant. For my righteousness is yours, and your forgiveness is in me. So Lord, tonight my prayer is if there's anyone here who is burdened not just with guilt but with shame with who they are, Lord, would you correct that? And would you re lead them to believe and know that they are beautiful in the sight of God? They are worthy because of what you've done. And so Lord, my prayer is that you would cleanse your people and that leaders would rise up out of this weekend to step into leadership, both in their home and their school and the church and that God's people, the church, would be built up in faithfulness. Lord, you know the burdens we carry for our homes, for our friends. God, may we be an influence of such significance that the work of the gospel would be finished, that Jesus, you would come soon. 
We pray this, beseeching this in Jesus' name. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.